to those watching and listening, and a very special welcome to our in-studio audience, who we are always thrilled to have here. Welcome. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide people with an encouraging space in which to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity. Using on-stage TV, radio, and public venues, and offering workshops in the art and practice of storytelling, we aim to help people bridge differences and build understanding and respect for all. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our workshops and other assistance to tellers, this is not a competition. We have no ranking, scoring, or judging. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together, and that is why we're here. Our shows also generally have a theme that is really intended to get people's minds turning thinking of stories they have. Tonight's theme is tipping points. So to define our terms, a tipping point is considered the critical point in, a, in an evolving situation that leads to a new and irreversible development. I actually read that the term is believed to have originated in the field of epidemiology when an infectious disease reaches a point beyond any local ability to control it from spreading more widely. But of course, it's now used in many fields, and probably tonight you'll be hearing other than the infectious disease one, don't worry. <laughs> and we will learn tonight how our storytellers have experienced tipping points in their own lives. We are going to hear tonight from five tellers. We have Bruce McIntyre, Dane Peters, Sharon Jones, Al Portia, and Pat Spaulding. They're each going to come up here with a 10-minute limit to their telling. Everyone will also be introduced to you by our MC, Pat Spaulding. Following the storytelling, Pat will interview one of tonight's tellers, Al Portia. But first, for the stories. Let's welcome Pat up here to introduce our first teller. Come on up, Pat. Hello, everybody. Good to see you here tonight. First up, we have Bruce McIntyre. He is a true native of New Hampshire. Born in Dover, he spent his working career in Portsmouth and now lives in Lee. After 38 years in the retail investment brokerage business, 21 of those years in Portsmouth, Oppenheimer and Company, Bruce retired to free up his time for the serious hobbies of golf and folk singing. Those are serious hobbies. He is president of the Portsmouth Maritime Folk Festival, a member of the performance committee of the Portsmouth Athenaeum, and is still performing after 10 or more years with the local traditional Irish maritime folk band, Great Bay Sailor. Bruce sings and plays the guitar, is that correct? Yes, guitar yes. is your instrument, yeah. But tonight, he's not going to be doing his musical side, he's going to be doing his storytelling side. He'll tell us a story about how an offhand invitation and an adolescent fantasy combined to set his future on a course that changed his life forever. 
It's a beautiful story. <laughs> Let's listen to his story from a garland of tipping points. Come on up, Bruce. Hi, everyone. It's really a pleasure to be here. This is a, a new medium, but not too strange because I've been on stage a lot. The storytelling thing really attracts me. So being here with you as audience is really a great thrill for me. Thank you, Pat. What happened is, is I broke the rules immediately. Uh, we came here for a little bit of a, um, a, a how-to session a few weeks ago to make sure that when we got on stage, we wouldn't wander too much off topic or do the things that we don't want to do and uh, look as professional as possible. And uh, I immediately have backed away from all of that training and actually changed the story that Pat just uh, introduced so beautifully. <laughs> it's in there, it's in there, but the focus has changed because while I was going through this thing about tipping points, I realized that they're all over the place. If you really think about it, every day of your life has a, has a small tipping point in it, but then there's the big ones that are easy to recognize. So uh, I gave the, uh, the topic that I'd like to speak on the title of uh, a, 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 from the garland of tipping points. In other words, we're choosing things to talk about. And tipping points come in different genres. They come in different types of, of clothing, and, 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 and they come from different directions. For instance, the obvious ones are the ones that change your life, bang, just like that. All of a sudden, you're in a whole new place, and you're wondering, oh, boy, will I be able to do anything about that? So let's talk about cancer. You go to your, you go to your uh, urologist, and he tells you you got prostate cancer. That's a tipping point. And by the way, he's the voice and the messenger. The, the, the actual force that comes at you at that time is not explainable. You don't understand it. It's just fate, and it comes through the door. Those are biggies, aren't they? Then there's the other types of tipping points that are delivered by a, a, a word from a friend, like the, like the, like the nun that, that, that in, in study hall in sophomore year in high school leans down over you and says, McIntyre. Yes, sister, you're going to start working. You're getting C's, I know. You could be governor. Get to work. And from that moment on, I was an A student. That was a tipping point. See, that's the type of thing that we, we don't understand it until you, you can look in the rearview mirror and say, aha, that's one of those people that really came in and affected our lives. And we're doing it to other people. This is an evolutionary process. Evolution doesn't walk, work in one direction. It's kind of like we give love only if it's received, and we receive love only if it's given. And I think we have to be aware to do both things. We have to be in the moment. So this is the discussion about that. And I, cho I chose to put the back burner on, on Pat's uh, uh, story that she likes so much because it got a little bit too complicated for me. I'm going to tell it again if I'm invited back, and we'll see what happens tonight. But... Uh, the, uh, I'm going to tell you about a, 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 uh, an event that I'm, I'm, I'm in the seventh grade and I'm playing backyard football with friends. There's five of us local guys and there's some other guys that have come from the other side of town down Dover. And we're in the se seventh and eighth grade, but uh, the, the guys coming in are probably eighth and ninth grade. They're a little bit bigger, a little bit older, and we're playing tackle football in the sandlot out back, a very dangerous occupation at best. And we're having a pretty good time, the locals are, because we're keeping up with these guys and they're getting very aggravated, particularly with me, because I'm slow and not very talented, but I'm tricky. So in open field running, I'm getting by these guys and they're really getting angry with me. They're really getting frustrated. And one particular, one guy in particular, Donnie, he's, he's, a, he's, the, he's the jock, he's the guy with all the swagger. And uh, 
they finally put a plan together to, to put a little stop to my, my energies, and they do a gang tackle, and it's a vicious one. And uh, when I get up, my shoulder is viciously dislocated. It's, it's one of the worst injuries that I would wish on no one. That's the tipping point. And it's not done by the grace of God. It's not done by fate. It's done by passion and other people being around you. It could have been a word. It could have been a gesture. But in this particular case, it was a hands-on experience. So four or five hours later, when they finally put it in, what I had realized during that period of time is I looked straight in the eye of death. And the reason why is that I had a piece of my body that for all practical purposes was dead to me. It couldn't be used. It was in extreme pain. It's something I didn't want to know about anymore. And for the first time in my life, I saw mortality. That's a tipping point. And it wasn't very nice. Well, that's the first part of the story. It doesn't end there. And I call this a Gemini tip, okay? Because it's a, it's a twin type of thing. You have to have the closure on it or it, doesn't, it isn't very poignant. Everybody can tell me about, I bet you everybody can stand up and tell me a story about that injury that you got that really changed your life. And if you haven't had that injury, then consider yourself very lucky. No, it happens 30 years later. I'm at a cocktail party and I'm a stockbroker, I'm married. And Donnie, my, my, the guy that caused this injury to me, I've seen him a few, on and off. I used to shoot pool. We mentioned that before. He used to shoot pool, and, and he would show up once in a while. But he, he was a little bit older, and he was doing other things. So all of a sudden, I'm in this room, and I'm at the hors d'oeuvre table, and I looked in the corner, and there's Donnie sitting there with a beer in his hand looking at me, with his people. But all of a sudden, the room's empty. And now we have a problem. We have to talk to one another. At least I think we're going to talk to one another. And I've got my, little, uh, my, uh, my hors d'oeuvres in one hand and my glass of wine in the other. And I looked over at him. And he said to me, how's your shoulder? And my heart just jumped. It was just an amazing thing. Because I knew he wasn't being sarcastic. And I knew he wasn't, being, uh, he wasn't saying that he won the battle. It wasn't a brag. It was a man who I didn't realize at the time that I was being tipped 30 years before he was also being tipped. He had taken on a piece of baggage for the last 30 years that was extremely sad. He'd hurt somebody badly, and he regretted it. He wanted to know how my shoulder was. What he really wanted to say is, can you ever forgive me? So I told him the story. It was important for him to know the story. I could say I forgive you, but I want him to know the whole story and why that's possible. I told him about the fact that I had to give up sports. Well, I didn't right away because not being a very smart fellow, I tried all kinds of ways to dislocate my shoulder, which I was very successful at doing. I did it playing basketball, playing football, skiing, wrestling, um, baseball, golf. Uh, although golf's not so bad, I can still play it. Um, there was hardly a time when I, when I, I even put it out one time putting, uh, picking up my dad's cat, okay? I, I did it the wrong way, boom. As a matter of fact, I was teaching a course that night in, in investments at UNH. And I was in such pain when I was there that the, the students wanted to bring me out to the, but it had gone back in, but it was still painful. And the guy at the emergency room was all screwed up because he couldn't tell why it was so painful and neither could I. But the point is, the older you get, the worse it gets. 
But, but I still am able to do a lot of things that I love to do. I ski with one hand, for instance. But I told him this story. And I told him the other part of it was that when that door closed, when I couldn't go, try out for varsity sports, which I would have been able to do, although my body, you can see, that's a little bit weak in the upper area, probably wouldn't have been a, a very good thing to do anyway. The point is, is that I had other options. The, the old saw is that if the one door closes, the other one opens, right? Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened, and I happened to have the tools to walk in that second door. I sang all my life. So all of a sudden, I'm in the speech club, and I'm in debate. I'm terrible at that. They threw me out. We did some, we did some theater. Um, I, I began to sing a lot. I was, the, I was the, uh, the star. Well, not the star. One of the many stars in the Mikado. We put a full-dress um, uh, Mikado on it at St. Thomas in 1964, uh, the year of graduation. And I, I was Nanki Poo, a very important, uh, very, the wandering minstrel. And I can prove it to you. A wandering minstrel, I, a thing of shreds and patches, of ballad songs and snatches, and dreamy lullaby. <laughs> there it is. There's the proof. Thank you very much. What I found is that there was a whole other life waiting. And it was full. It was rich, and it didn't need the. But you need to learn this as you go along. You, you, when when you're in the process, it's very difficult to see because I go to basketball games and sit there and weep because they couldn't be on the team. I've soon got over that because all these other things came in, and they 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 proved to be just as challenging, just as rewarding, uh, and a wonderful way to communicate with other people in the world. So I was I was very happy with that outcome believe it or not. And I believe that to a certain extent, and this will, I will relate this later on, that the woman of my dreams was, was probably able to be captured by this humble, um, gawk, uh, gangling little guy from Dover because he knew something about Gilbert Sullivan. Who knows what, what it was, but it, you know, but it was interesting how that seemed to play in my direction also. So I said, I said to Donnie, I said this. I said, Donnie, it caused me a lot of pain, and it also caused me a lot of success. And in an odd sort of a way, I want to thank you because my life has been good and it's been filled with these other options. So don't ever think about it again. And I didn't say I forgive you because I'm not a priest, but he knows that I forgave him and he knows that he could leave the room. Okay, i got about a minute and a half left, so it's just perfect timing. I can't believe it. The, this re, that story is over. So there's two, there's two big tipping points we talked about. Then there's the tiny one, the little itty-bitty, itty-bitty. You know, it's kind of like uh, Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. You know, the little bitty, itty-bitty. <laughs> that tipping point came from a guy by the name of Bob Papura, and he was from Portsmouth. And we were at a regional school. I had only met him, I only knew him for one semester, and he drifted out of my life. And there's a great story about the pool room, which I'm not doing, but we'll, <laughs> we'll do that again someday. But Papura was, was the guy that introduced me to pool, which became an addiction, but we won't go there. But he did something else that was even more magnificent. I, was, I had my eyeball on Jane Illingworth. She was a cheerleader, and she was lovely, and I really wanted to ask her out. But I was worried that she'd say no. But more than that, I was worried about what my friends would say. Was she good enough? You know, those teenage doubts about where you're at and what your value is. And Well, anyway, 
We're standing at the, at the doorway to the, uh, to the study hall, and Papura is watching Jane skip up the corridor after, after practice from the uh, uh, cheerleader practice, and he turns and said to me something like this. He said, boy, I'd really like to study Latin with her tonight. Bingo, tipping point. The next day I called her up, or I didn't call her up, I saw her in school, and I asked her on a date, and she said yes. And my heart was filled with joy. And I, I, a week later we went down to the Hampton Casino for the CYO dance. We couldn't drive, so we took the CYO bus down. We held hands on the way down and looked in each other's eyes, and we fell in love. I was married to her for 44 years. We dated for eight before that, so we dated for, for, for eight years. And on uh, May 15th of 2013, she died in my arms at 3.30 in the morning. And I'm telling you right now that I still really believe that Bob Papura had a lot to do with that in that little itty-bitty way because I remember him only for two things. I remember him bringing me to the pool room and I remember him saying to me, I'd really like to study Latin with her. So, I'm done, and the only thing that I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with is this. Happy tipping. Surprises. Thank you, Bruce. You're welcome. <laughs> um, next up, um, those were some beautiful tipping points, and they've enhanced our lives, I'm sure. I mean, I'm remembering them. I'm going to do a little something about forgiveness, too. Um, Dane Peters up next. He lives with his wife, Chris, in Greenland, New Hampshire. And a long, long time ago, he ran two schools. Wow, I'm reading this without my glasses. <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> having spent most of his career in middle school education, Dane still consults with schools throughout the U.S. and has written more than 100 articles in many different publications about his experiences in education. You can visit his long-running blog, Dane's Education Blog. He is currently the vice president of the Seacoast Repertory theater and a member of Senior Moments, an acting troupe for senior citizens. Okay now, does anyone here remember what the internet was like back in the mid-90s? Mm -hmm. AOL dial-up. Okay, AOL dial-up. Okay, now I was trying to bring it back and I couldn't really get a clear idea of my relationship with it. Tonight, Dane will describe two instances of internet tipping points for some young explorers and their headmaster in his story, Internet Abuse, Students in the Middle. Come on up, Dane. Thank you, Pat. So we know all about Internet abuse. It's all around us, and it's, it's just out of, it's out of control, whether it's fake news or it's the nastiness that's going on in terms of getting into your individual accounts and the, not even to mention the pornography and all of the stuff that goes on. Well, 
Let me take you back to the 1990s. I was heading a school. It was a middle school in Connecticut. And I came across two tipping points that changed, hopefully, what was going on at the school at that time and changed the lives of those kids that tipped the point, if you will. And just as a refresher, that in the 1995, let's say, the World Wide Web was just coming into its own. You could go out there and you could get just about anything you wanted. Just type it in. And you know how the kids back then, as, as today, they're so facile with it. They just pick it up and they run with it. That 1995 was a time when I had a cell phone. It was the size of a brick. <laughs> and you were lucky if you could make a connection with it. Well, my day as a head of the school, this particular school, was I would stand out in front every morning and greet the students as they came in and the faculty as well. And every once in a while, a parent would come by, and this one particular morning, <clears throat> excuse me, this one particular morning, a father starts walking toward me. He's carrying a brown paper, like, lunch bag with him. And he looks up at me, and he says, is Mark around? Mark was the assistant headmaster. I said, well, he's probably in his office, or he's up at morning assembly. And he just takes off. And I go up, I'm done with my greeting, and I go up to morning assembly, and it's over, it's finishing up. And I wait, and I see Mark, and I say, Mark, what, what did Ari want, the father? He says, come on, I'll show you. So we walk up to his office, to Mark's office, and he points over there to the desk, and there's the brown paper bag. And I walk over, and I look, and I go, Oh my God, where did he get this? It was a psychedelic dildo. <laughs> About six inches long. It looked real, but it was painted psychedelic. And I said, well, where did he get it? Well, Prissy, his daughter, his seventh grade daughter, got it in the mail yesterday. Oh, really? Does... She know where it came from? She named two boys in her class that she thinks probably did it. I said, okay, let's get to the bottom of this. Have the two boys with their advisors come up to my office and we'll sit down and talk with them. Well, 10 minutes later, the boys come in with their advisors. They sit down and they're a little bit sheepish. They know something's not right. And I said, you know, Prissy got something in the mail yesterday. Do you know anything about it? Uh, yeah. And I said, well, what, what were you doing? What were you thinking about? Oh, it was a joke. It was just a joke. I said, well, that's a pretty inappropriate joke. But first of all, help, help me out here. And I wanted to bust their chops a little bit. I want to say, what is it? <laughs> they look at me like you got to be kidding me you're an adult and they said it's, 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 it's an artificial penis <laughs> okay but then and of course the advisors are about to split a carbuncle <laughs> Just, I said okay if, if that's what it is 
what's it used for? And they go, you could see the beads of sweat coming in. I, this, is, this is pure joy to me. I just, I'm getting my, making my point. So I, you, you use it for sex. And they came up with some kind of explanation, and I started letting them off the hook. Then I asked them, I said, well, how did you get it to her house? Oh, the, the internet, you know, and there's a store, and you can go online and you just order her just about anything you want. I said, and you did that? You ordered it and had it sent to her house? Yeah. Here's the tipping point. How did you pay for it? I mean, how did you do MasterCard? I said, you, you have a MasterCard? I said, well, we got that on the internet, too. You go to, I said, how do you do that? Well, you go to a, a website and you just, you know, put in a code or something and they send you a MasterCard number. And we use that MasterCard. You know what, guys? Up till now, I could see that it was a prank and it was inappropriate to do that. But now you've broken the law. This is mail fraud. They look at me like, no, we didn't, you know, was it, we didn't mean to do that. Well, you did it. And you're going to have to pay a price for that. First, I'm going to tell your parents. They've got to know about this. Second of all, you're going to send a letter of apology to Prissy and her parents to say that you were very sorry for doing that. And also, I'm going to suspend you from school for a week because I don't want you to forget this. Not only the inappropriateness of the message, but also breaking the law. I'll let your parents deal with that part. And sure enough, I brought the parents in and I said, I have to tell you something with the son there. I said, I have to tell you something. Um, I'm going to suspend your son for a week uh, because of what he did. And I explained it. And the first parent was just mortified. She just said, I am so sorry. He will never do that again. And the second parent, typical of private schools, if you will, more typical, is, how dare you? You're going to suspend him? You can't do that. He's in seventh grade. He knows no better. The internet is so new. No one knows anything about it. I said, sorry, he broke the law. And however you deal with this at home, that's up to you. But this is how I'm dealing with it at school. So that was the first tipping point. Fast forward one year. It's now the Monday after Halloween. And I go into my office, pick up the phone, check my voicemail, and there's a message from the president of the Parents Association of the school, Allie. And she is really upset. She says, Dane, you have got to call me as soon as you get this message. I am so upset. And I said, Okay, I'll get on it. And I really liked this lady. She was very helpful, very supportive of the school. Had a nice kid, Marty. So I call up and I said, Allie, it's Dane. What's up? What happened? What's... She said, well, you know, you sent Marty an email last night. I said, Allie, no, I didn't. She said, Dane, he's on the to line. Your name and email address is on the from line. I said, well, Allie, i got to tell you now, I did not send him an email. And, but, but what is it that's upsetting you so much now that I didn't send? She said, 
That's what you said in the email. I said, well, let's, let's talk about this. I can't, Dane. It's, it's too embarrassing. What, what do you mean? Well, come on. We got, I got to get to the bottom of this. I need to know what happened. Well, it, it's about you and me having an affair. I said, oh, my goodness. And she said, thank God, Dane, that I was looking over Marty's shoulder as he was looking through his email. And he looks up back at me as if to say, Ma, what? And I said, oh, thank goodness you were there. Because what if you weren't there? And he'd want to probably protect you from his headmaster who did this with you, whatever it was. I said, Allie, I am sorry that this happened. Does, does he have any idea of who might have done this? He said, yeah, he thinks it's probably Eddie. Eddie was a seventh grade boy in his class. Now, Eddie was a really nice kid, very nerdy. He, anybody who had any difficulty with the Internet or technology, faculty or kids, they'd go to Eddie. <laughs> he was just a whiz, but a nice boy. So I said, all right, I'm going to talk to Eddie, and I'll get back to you as soon as I find out. I have Eddie into my office with his advisor. And I said, Eddie, did you... Uh, do something with an email to Marty last night? <laughs> yeah. Well, what were you thinking? Well, it, was a, it was a Halloween joke. That's all. He said, let's talk about that. What the heck were you thinking about? Now, first of all, why would you write something about Marty's mom and me like that, the headmaster of the school? Again, it was just a joke. And I said, and here comes the tipping point. I said, so how, how did you do that? Oh, I have a piece of pirated software that can manipulate email addresses. You just put it in and do this, do that, and it can put in any email and you can send it to anywhere. I said, Eddie, you broke the law. Again, you're tampering with mail. This is electronic mail, but you're tampering with it. You can't do that. It's just not right. And he's looking at me like, oh, really? And first of all, I'm going to have your parents in, and we're going to talk about this, and you're going to be right here. Brought the parents in. They were embarrassed. They were so appreciative of bringing them in right away. And I said, I have to not only for the inappropriateness of the email, but also he broke the law by tampering with mail. And I've got to suspend him for a week. This really kind of broke my heart. The other two boys didn't like it, but they were really hurting this girl and this family. Uh, this was between, you know, among Allie, me, and Marty, kind of. But uh, I, I believed him that it was an innocence. And that's where the Internet is so insidious. It sort of sneaks up on you and tantalizes you, and you go for it, you get into it, and then all of a sudden, you've screwed up. You've done something really, really bad. And so often we try to take it back because, oh, my God, it's, it's bad, and you try to make up for it somehow, some way. When you're a middle school kid, it's you're on to the next thing. In any case... It's up to us as parents, grandparents, as teachers to try to protect our kids from
from the internet abuse. And you're going to see article after article in education magazines that talk about it. How do you talk to your kid about tweeting? How do you talk to your kid about Facebook? How do you talk to your kid about YouTube and Instagram and all the things that come on? And we try to keep up with it, but it's hard to. If you want to read this same story, I wrote an article about it in 2002 in an education magazine. If you go to my blog, you can type in Internet abuse, and it'll, it'll crop up. But thank you for listening, and let's get that Internet under control if we can. Thank you. We totally need guys like Eddie to get it under control, and then, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know what the solution is. The solution is Sharon Jones. She's going to come up and uh, be our solution for the next um, story. She grew up right here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where she was raised in a close-knit family of 13 children. Sharon's currently writing a book about that. Recently honored in a special ceremony by the Black Heritage Association for her services and excellence as an entertainer and mentor, she unveiled the Ella Fitzgerald postage stamp. The Portsmouth Herald accurately named Sharon's um, a Portsmouth gem. <laughs> Indeed she is. In her youth, she moved to Los Angeles to study voice, where she became an accomplished singer who toured with legendary jazz artists all across the country. And although Sharon says that she strives to, be, to keep a good balance in her life, she's one of the busiest women I know <laughs> who performs all over New England. You can catch her act here in Portsmouth at Demeter's Steakhouse, the Dolphin Striker, the Press Room when it reopens, um, and at Rudy's, or in Boston at the Beehive and the Beat Hotel. Sharon is a singer, a vocal coach, and storyteller who loves spending time with her family and hanging out with friends. She is out and about all over town, but it wasn't always like that. Let's find out about Sharon's early years in her story the doll that sat beside me. Sharon? I always need, need this water because, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, because for some reason when I, uh, when I tell stories, I, I get very nervous and because I'm a, an entertainer, but I'm a singer. And the good part about being a singer is that you always have a group of musicians that surround you. So if something happens, they take care of it. When you're out here telling a story, if something happens, it happens. <laughs> so I, I must say that I, I, I learn as I go along, uh, learning how to be a better storyteller by watching those who come before me, this gentleman and, and you and other storytellers that I've seen that, I've, uh, that have uh, truly impressed me. So I'm going to start, and I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm learning, so you, you have to come along with me. My story is that I have so many of them that Pat has to keep me straight that I don't drift off into another era. And so this one is about a doll, the doll that sat beside me. Now, those of you that have watched the old Alfred Hitchcock movies, 
All right. Then you know that Alfred Hitchcock appeared in every one of his movies. You just had to look for him. You never knew where he was going to be. But he did show up in every movie that he ever produced. And in my case, I have three characters that show up in mine. Two are basically real characters. My father, who believed that if you didn't know protocol, you should sit down. And my mother, who let my father know when it was time not to mention protocol. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the experiences that I've had growing up in New England and Portsmouth, being born and raised here, is the racism that I was impacted by uh, in many, many, many ways. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about my very, very young years. I lived in a huge, huge house, and my younger sister was my best friend. And she and I played in that big house every single day. And we played with paper dolls that we cut out of a Sears and Roebuck catalog, because that's where our paper dolls came from back then. And they were wonderful. And so we played with those paper dolls and our dolls in this corner of this house that was always warmed and lit by natural sunlight. And that was soon to come to an end when my mother said, you're going to school tomorrow. But she isn't, talking about my younger sister. And I wanted to say, are you talking to me? <laughs> So the day came, she got me all dressed up in my cute little dress, and we ran through the woods, and we lived on Cut Street and Maplewood Avenue, that big house that you see on the hill that was in the paper a few times. I guess Dr. Beck owned it at one time, and then there was a story going on with Gary Dodds and something was going on there. But I'll have him tell that story if you invite him sometime. So off to school I went. And my mother dropped me off and went back home. Well, not only did I go to school, but my sister Kitty held my mother's other hand, and the dog, Rex, we all went to New Franklin School, where Mrs. Alice Jeffords was the school principal at the time. Well, after the fourth time leaving, before I was even there for 10 minutes, my mother would turn around in the kitchen and what are you doing here? <laughs> so I learned how to walk back home from New Franklin School and get back over the woods and through the trees to grandmother's house we went. So, and my mother would turn around and I'd be there. Well, that, that happened uh, several times. Uh, the worst part about it was I felt that if I did it enough times, it would stick. My mother convinced me that she would have a word with my father when he got home that night, because that's what you did back then. These days, uh, uh, the kids have a word with their father, but back then, it was the father, the father that had a word with their children, and you listened. So when my father came home that night, after dinner, we went into the little, we called it the library, because it actually was, 
And because my father believed in protocol, we had to come to a meeting. Everything had to be a meeting in my house. If something happened, we're having a meeting. Go get them. <laughs> get them in here. We're having, to back up just a minute, there were 13 children. There were 10 girls and three boys in my family. The family was huge, and my sister Karen and I were the last of them. Hooray. <laughs> and so they had the meeting, and they said, what we think we should do is probably have a meeting with the principal, Miss Jeffords. So Miss Jeffords agreed to have this meeting. And the three of them came up with something, and I didn't know what it was. But, you know, in our lives as children, we hang on to something that's imaginary. I don't know if anyone really knows why, but we have a doll or some kind of an ugly stuffed animal. You see kids with them, and now there are dogs that walk around with them. You know, if you see downtown, <laughs> they're hanging out of their mouth, and they're just, they won't let them go. So that, that was a comforting factor back then, you know, to have something that you were holding, a little furry thing that you felt safe with. So into the second week, Mrs. Jeffers pulled me aside and said, um, I have something for you. And it came in a box, and, and I didn't open it up right away because I was very shy. And um, during that day, during that era, there was so much subtle racism in New Hampshire that no one was talking about. So if you were a little black girl born and raised in New Hampshire and you were the only one in the class, it didn't feel right. It never felt right. And Mrs. Jeffers, having the sense of humility that she had, wanted to make it right. And she showed so much love and affection. And she felt that if she made me a gift of this doll, that doll could kind of become that little fuzzy animal or that thing that these kids carry around, and it did. And I named the doll Tootie. I don't know why, but Tootie, Tootie was pretty cool. So I opened up the box when I got home, and I fell in love with this little doll with this cloth body and this wooden head, you know, and these eyes, and, and she was wonderful. So I asked my mother if I could take Tootie to school with me. But Tootie was almost like my sister Kitty that I was playing with because Tootie didn't ever talk and neither did my sister. <laughs> <laughs> so it was basically the same thing, you know. <laughs> and, and Kitty could talk, don't get me wrong, but I was the big sister and I spoke on her behalf. Even if she wanted something at the dinner table, I can remember at the breakfast table, Kitty, do you want strawberry jelly or would you like blueberry? And I say, you want strawberry? And Kitty would say, yeah, I want strawberry. You know? So, so Tootie fit right into that scenario. Well, Tootie went to school with me for the rest of the year, for the rest of the kindergarten year. And to end this story, I just want to say that those imaginary 
people or things that we communicate with in our lives, and we've all had them. It might be your, your conscience that whispers in your ear every now and then and tells you that something isn't right, that you need to change it. But when you're a child, you have to kind of be able to touch it and feel it and see it. So as I got older, I realized what, what a gift that was and, and how insightful that was of that principle that she took the time to care about this little black girl whom the other children wouldn't really communicate with. And Tootie became my friend until I got a lot older and then things started changing anyway. But for that a moment in time, Tootie got me through the worst and she took me through some of the best. And some of my friends say, where is Tootie now? And my answer is, I don't know, and it's not really important where she is now. It's more important what she brought into my life at the time. And sometimes our friends or somebody that we love dearly, they disappear, but not really, because what they left stays there. And that's the story of the doll that sat beside me. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. You never let us down. <laughs> and now, Al Porsche. Uh, he and his wife of 40 years live in Lee, New Hampshire. Al has had several different careers, including work as an academic counselor for Granite State College, where he taught courses in critical thinking and statistics. In the latter part of his career, he worked for the Veterans Center, counseling returning vets from our many wars to more successfully manage and heal the inevitable emotional and spiritual wounds resulting from their war experiences. Al is a musician. Playing the piano has always been important to him, important part of his life. And now that he's retired, he is both taking and giving lessons as well as regularly playing music with friends. Al's story tonight visits a tipping point in his life that changed his understanding of his family's values and financial stability and ultimately affected his larger world view. Its title is... The swerve. <laughs> I think I'm going to sit. Let's see what we get this thing out. Try not to bump that. Good evening. Good to see everyone. So, yes, the tipping point, the swerve, a sudden change of direction. That's the story I'm going to try to share with you tonight. And I have to go back pretty far in the past of my life, uh, all the way back to 1965. I was uh, 19 years old, and I went off to college at uh, Villanova University outside of Philadelphia. And uh, I was able to live off campus. I don't know how I pulled that off. It was a beautiful apartment and a home on the main line in Philadelphia. <clears throat> and I also had my own car, a brand-new Buick electric convertible, which was a Needless to say, an extravagant uh, graduate from high school present that my father gave me. Uh, 
So life was good. I was living life large, you could say. And uh, during that first semester, I came home from class one day in, in November, and uh, my car wasn't in the driveway. So I was very upset. I called the police. They came and took a report and assumed the car was stolen. About an hour later, the police came back, and they said, uh, about your car, young man, you might want to call home and talk to your father. <laughs> well, as you probably already guessed, you know, the car was repossessed. So I, I finished that semester of college and went back home in the middle of de December and found out that not only was I not going to be going back to Villanova the next semester, but my family had gone completely bankrupt. Uh, so not only were cars being repossessed, but uh, the house was also being taken back by the bank. So, uh, you know, I'd never really thought much about money, a kind of shallow 19-year-old kid, uh, other than thinking a goal in life was to try and acquire as much of it as you possibly could. Uh, so how did I have such a view of the, the world at, at that age? Well, I, I've got to give you a little background of, about my family. Uh, my father uh, was a very successful lawyer. He was a politician. He was an entrepreneur. We lived in a beautiful home, lavishly furnished, beautiful cars, um, you know, everything, the best that money could buy. That's what we had. And uh, clearly my father was someone who was very preoccupied with uh, acquiring as much wealth as he could and the status that would go with it. And even though he was very uh, successful, never really had a, enough from his point of view. So he was heavily leveraged, as they would say, on Wall Street. Uh, he tended to spend maybe 50% more in addition to whatever he made. So he had a lot of debt. And I was sort of oblivious to this until this point in time. But in that fall of 1965, uh, this all came crashing down due to some severe financial reverses. So what happened? Uh, my father, as I said, he, he was very successful as a lawyer, but he also made a lot of money in the 1950s. He got into the strip coal mine business uh, with this gentleman named George Pennington who came into his life, who convinced him to invest in, in this coal mine operation. Um, needless to say, uh, they weren't talking about global warming then, but uh, neither of these gentlemen were what we would call environmentalists. Uh, Strip coal mines pretty grim, pollutes the groundwater, scars the land, etc. But in any event, that's what they did. And I have to tell you a little bit about this George Pennington. He was kind of a larger-than-life figure. And um, he made fortunes many times over in his life and lost them, uh, always in mining activities, gold mines, gas wells, oil wells, coal mines. Now, I remember when I was uh, 12 years old, he was, this was back in the 50s when they were very successful in their coal operation. He was at our house, and somehow I was volunteered to play a game of chess with this Mr. Pennington. And I can remember sitting at the chess board, uh, he was opposite me, and at one point he looked at me very closely and he said, young man, I want to tell you something that you should never forget. All wealth comes from the earth. Well, a few years later when Dustin Hoffman made the movie The Graduate, and there's that incredible line, where he's back home and his family's and there's a friend of the father's who said, plastics, young man, remember plastics? I couldn't help but think back to George Pennington's line. So they made a lot of money in the 50s and then sold off the operation. My father went back to being a lawyer. He was always just a financial investor. 
And so when Mr. Pennington came back into his life in the mid-60s with another coal deal, my father was like, sure, why not? This time it was going to be a much bigger endeavor, uh, such a large endeavor that they actually borrowed $750,000 to invest in this operation. And I did a little research on Google. $750,000 in 1964 or whatever is like $6 million today. I mean, we're talking serious loan, serious debt. But they had a, they bought this incredible coal equipment, a 27-yard drag line, whatever that is, some sort of coal excavator. Uh, they had these leases on all this coal land that they had to buy, and they had the geologist's reports that indicated there was large seams of coal there. They were going to make tons of money. Well, to make a long story short, the geologists were wrong. The coal wasn't there. It ran out very quickly. George Pennington, at that point in time, unfortunately, had a heart attack and died. My father didn't know anything about mining. He was just a financial investor. And so he was left holding the bag, including the $750,000 loan. And that's why we lost all our possessions, the house and what have you. Uh, but, uh, you know, I watched how this impacted my father. And he was always a, a heavy drinker, but this really sort of pushed him over the edge. And he really sort of slipped into the beginning stages of full-blown alcoholism, which certainly didn't help matters at all. But he didn't go down without a fight. Uh, i got to say that for my father. He was, uh, when he wasn't drinking and he had his act together, he was a very bright, very persuasive man. So before we had to leave our house, which was in the first week in January, about a week before, the sheriff, the county sheriff, comes to put, post these placards on the house that said it would be illegal to remove anything from the house because it was all going to be sheriff's souls. So they're not only taking the house, they're taking everything, furnishings, whatever. Well, my father, as I mentioned, had been in politics all of his life. He knew the sheriff. So he said to the sheriff, he said, you know, this is very traumatic. You know, we're leaving town in a week. You could spare us some additional embarrassment if you wouldn't post the signs. And the sheriff said, okay, fine. At which point my father immediately contacted there's people that do these estate sales, even if you're not dead, and they have a client list, and then they come in and they price everything in your house, and of course at fire sale prices, and then they call up their clients, and over a Saturday and Sunday, everything in the house was sold. Uh, furniture, oriental rugs, my piano, the paintings, you name it, it was all sold. And the end result was we had $30,000 in cash. So two days later, we leave town, uh, it was uh, a dramatic exit, uh, not a good day. Uh, I remember we rented a Corvair van. They actually used to have one that sort of competed with the Volkswagen bus. It was called a Greenbrier, ugly thing. Uh, my father was passed out in the back of that. Uh, we had a few suitcases of clothes that, that weren't sold, and uh, my mom beside me, and I'm driving, and we leave town. But we've got the 30 grand, too. So we drive to Washington, just outside Washington, D.C., to Silver Spring, Maryland and move into a very modest garden apartment where you could month-to-month -month lease. So as I said, when my father gets it together, he could make things happen. So he decided he was going to use his $30,000 as seed money to try to recreate the lifestyle that he was accustomed to and that he preferred to live. So the next thing I know, we're suddenly moving into this incredible penthouse apartment, the top two floors of an apartment building, spiral staircase up to a cupola, to a rooftop garden, beautiful views of the, the Capitol and the Potomac River. This is in southwest Washington, D.C. Of course, we didn't have any furniture, which the maintenance people thought was rather strange. My father said, oh, the furniture's coming, the furniture's coming. Uh, 
we lasted there, I think, two months, uh, and then we were gone. It was at this time, uh, somewhere during this time, my father went out and bought three brand-new cars, uh, two Austin Healey Sprites, a red one for me and a blue one for my sister, and some boat of a convertible for himself. We had those, you know, I'm sure he, like, used cash to for down payments and presented himself as this successful businessman and wrote a bad check. We had those cars uh, for five weeks, and then they were gone. Uh, another thing he did at this time, he, he had a... Uh, he had a deal that he was working on with Richard Petty, the race car driver, and it had to do with timber in Central America, in Belize, I believe was the country. Uh, there's that all wealth comes from the earth again. Uh, <laughs> of course, that, that didn't pan out either. So, uh, as you can imagine, uh, these events certainly uh, impacted me and, uh, and changed my worldview. Uh, I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit that before this happened, I, I'd sort of... Uh, you know, accepted wholeheartedly and, and parroted my parents' sort of worldview, which was that uh, you judge yourself and other people by how much money they accumulated. So when all this stuff happened, I had to really alter that view. I couldn't maintain that any longer. So uh, not only did I have to alter that view, I had to get a job. And so I left the house and got myself a job at the Library of Congress, uh, sounds elegant, but I was in the bindery. But I worked from 3 to 11 in the afternoon, which enabled me to go to George Washington University, which enabled me to keep my student deferment because there was a war going on at the time, and I certainly didn't want to wind up being drafted and going to Vietnam. Uh, but I didn't study. I failed all those classes, so that didn't work out. The University of Pittsburgh became state-related, very inexpensive. I went back to Pittsburgh and enrolled there, got a job selling pizza, living in a rooming house, uh, passed some of those courses. But the draft board finally said in like February of 68, you're not a college student. You only have 31 credits that you passed. You should have like 90 credits. They took away my deferment and I got drafted in 68, 69 to 70. I went to Vietnam as an infantry soldier. So these were all things that dramatically <laughs> changed, uh, changed my life. Those are, they're, they're all tipping points. They were, they were all a swerve. But the end result of all this was that when I think back on George Pennington's all wealth comes from the earth, uh, I mean, and it's true if you're talking about financial wealth, but it isn't true. You have to use a different metric if you're talking about true wealth. And so what I've learned is the true wealth is not the money that you have. It's the friends you have. It's the community that you have. It's the service to others that you do. It's your spiritual development. So I'd just like to close by sharing with you uh, something that my wife of 40 years closes. She has a blog, she quilts, and when she signs off on her blog, she always ends by saying, be kind, be grateful, and I should remember the last year, she's going to kill me, and appreciate each day. And uh, I think if you live with that motto, you will always have true wealth and not be subject to the ups and downs of financial manipulations. Thank you so much. Pat Spaulding is our next storyteller. She's a retired puppeteer who knew, now has the good fortune of doing pretty much whatever she wants. <clears throat> 
Identifying herself as a monologist majorette, Pat writes and tells first-person experience stories, and this is a majorette with the leftist marching band. Not sure how much longer her twirling career can last, <laughs> she is now learning to <clears throat> uh, use, play the bass drum with the leftist marching band. Pat sings with Contuti Chorus, as sometimes do I, and she's the MC of our True Tales Live program. Tonight she'll stare with, share with us an impromptu selected short story about an unexpected experience that happened just one month ago. The title of her story, I'm sorry, that's Walter. Thanks, David. So, this happened about a month ago when we have this wet spring, just rain coming down, day after day, day after day. Pretty miserable, kind of cold. It just, everybody's saying, well, this is not happy business. When is summer coming? And I was putting off an errand um, to go to the bank, you know, on Monday. I didn't want to go on Tuesday. It was still raining. Finally, it's like, okay, got to go to the bank. It's a miserable day. No more excuses. So head to the bank. And I don't like going through the mm -hmm. drive throughs There's something about it. It's just too impersonal, and I don't think it's efficient. It's not efficient to my life. So I get out of the car and you know, run to the bank, my umbrella, and take the umbrella and go through all that business. And at the bank, there are uh, three tellers and me, because it's a miserable day. Nobody wants to be out and about if they don't have to be. So there's two tellers kind of watching me at the desk, make out a deposit slip or withdrawal, whatever. And then the third teller, two tellers are men, and the third teller is a woman who's just kind of hanging at the window, waiting for a car to come by. When through the door storms, a guy who changes the energy in the bank a lot. It just, you know, you, you and uh, you know, this is this quiet little thing, nobody's here, and then this, so I look up, and he's a big guy, he's maybe 30-something, he's wearing a ball cap, and he's got a beard, and he's got worker clothes. This is about 3.30 in the afternoon, and we're all kind of, I got to say, you know, there's, the stereotyping thing that I believe is going through all of our heads because everything was so quiet and nothing was happening. Was just, and the energy that he brought was like, he had an agenda. It's like, ooh, okay. Um, hope nothing's going to happen here. So he storms up to the teller window that has nobody in it. And uh, he says, I want to talk to you. And he points to the woman who's at the door. Yeah, I mean, at the window for the car. It's not, you know, she's not there and she looks around like and the, one of the tellers says oh, can I help you sir he said no I want to talk to her and so what's it okay and so she turns around she doesn't come close but she just turns around so she's facing him and he said I want to tell you I'm sorry and she's uh you, you do because it's obviously she doesn't really know for what um and he said this morning I came through the drive-thru, I was in my truck, I hadn't had my coffee, and I said something, it was inappropriate, it had nothing to do with you, I, I didn't mean it as an insult, but it was just, I shouldn't have said it, and I wanted to apologize, I'm sorry. And she said, oh, and she's still trying to figure out, I, you can see, you know, this happened in the morning, this is like six hours later, and whatever this incident was, 
it wasn't that important to her. I, I, there's probably a lot of rude people that go through the bank <laughs> all day long. This is no big deal. But he said, I've been thinking about it all day. I couldn't come earlier. I, I needed to get to work. I couldn't, you know, just stop and turn around. And so I said, when I finish work, I was going to come and tell you I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And <laughs> so she said, okay, thank you. And the tellers are looking at him, and I'm looking at him. And then he turns around, and he leaves with the same energy that he came in. And I wanted to applaud. Like, yay! That was great. And the, all the tellers, the, the woman, she's still a little confused, but the two other guys said, that was great. It was a feel-good moment. We were all lifted. The rain was coming down outside. But inside that bank, we just experienced a heartfelt apology from a guy who looked like he was ready to blame somebody for something. That's what we expected. And I, I mean, all of us, I think, felt that. And it was such a relief to have our little stereotypical heads turned around. And uh, this was a good guy. They come in all kinds of <laughs> packages. And um, so I just felt that I was very glad that I came to the bank. It was still only the four of us. Nobody else came in, just the tellers, me, and that guy. And it left me feeling, and probably the other tellers too, wouldn't it be wonderful if more people like him took some personal responsibility for problems that they may have caused and just took the time to set it right by finding that person <laughs> that they had a problem with and apologizing, saying you're sorry. It goes a long way. There's when, especially in this environment, there is too much, it just, you, he could have just let it go, thought about, you know, something else, and um, never acknowledged that. Something wonderful about acknowledging what you've done, personal responsibility, saying you're sorry, and not blaming somebody else for a problem you may have caused. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. I'm going to move this for a moment. That wasn't my son, was it? <laughs> no, your son is better looking than this guy. Okay. But he was a nice looking guy. That's Thank you so much to all of tonight's storytellers, and to our studio audience for another fabulous night at True Tales Live. <laughs> Do stay tuned, because coming up next, we're going to have an interview of one of tonight's tellers, Al Portia. But first, a few things to relate to you here. So, True Tales Live will be back on this stage on Tuesday, September 26, with the theme of moving in or moving on. Also this fall, we will bring you stories on mishaps and fiascos, that should be fun, and what is home. 
If you are interested in telling on any of those themes, email us at truetaleslive1 at gmail.com. If you are interested in telling a story here, but unsure of yourself or need some help with your piece, we welcome you to come to our storytelling workshops that myself, Pat, and David run. We are also taking a summer break, so no July or August workshops, but September we will be back. It's here at PPMTV 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The next, it's from 7.30 to 9 p.m., free and open to the public, and the next one is September 5th. So again, remember that True Tales Live is taking the summer break for July and August with no shows or workshops those two months. All you wonderful people who come, we don't want you to be disappointed to find parking and walk up the hill and be alone. So we're really telling you. So you can keep watching us, though, because Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. and any time as video on demand... Um, we'll keep carrying us. To find us, you can go to youtube.com, search for PPMTV True Tales Live. We are going to make that easier for you at some point, but it's still, you have to remember that much. And we'll be available all summer long in both places. We also want to let you know that we have two special performances of what we call True Tales Live on stage this fall in Act One Summer Festival and Beyond Festival. Two completely different lineups of tellers will be featured, one on September 3rd, Sunday, 2 p.m., and the other on also Sunday, 2 p.m., October 1st. These are at the West End Studio Theater in Portsmouth, Tickets are already on sale, and they are expected to sell for the third year in a row. You can get yours at act1nh.org, or you can call 603-300-2986. Let's give some more thanks to folks who make these shows possible. John Levering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval. David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. Until our next True Tales live show, on behalf of all of us here, thanks for listening. And now we're going to go to our storyteller interview with Pat and Al. <laughs>